0: Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria Podcast. My name is Tori Tausig, and I am a non resident fellow in the Center on the United States and Europe at Brookings. This episode on the Brookings Cafeteria Podcast is the fourth and final episode in a four part series titled Democracy and Disorder, a new project in the foreign policy program that looks at critical challenges to democratic states and institutions in a new era of great power competition and offers ideas for what to do about them. This episode focuses on democracy in India and India's evolving role in the liberal international order. At a time when global democracy is challenged, the large majority of those living under democratic governance live outside the West. Several democratic countries in the Indo-Pacific and Asia have proven less affected by the populist tide than their Western counterparts. And India, as the largest democracy in the world and one with a growing economy, appears to be one such sign of resilience. To discuss a new perspective on the strength of democracy in international order, as well as India's evolving role in this order, I am joined by Dhruva Jaishankar, a contributor to the Democracy and Disorder Project and a fellow in the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings India in New Delhi. He is also a non-resident fellow at the Lowy Institute in Australia. And Druva is joining us over the phone from New Delhi. Thank you for joining us today, Druva.
1: Thanks for having me, Tori.
0: So Druva, you bring a new perspective to this democracy program, a non-Western perspective. And in your paper for the project, you discuss your view on the global state of democracy And in the West, there is a relatively pessimistic policy debate featuring conversations on populism, declining trust in democratic institutions, economic grievances, culture wars, a number of issues that are making it appear that democracy is challenged across the West. But what do you see from your perspective sitting in New Delhi? Do you think that we are on the verge of a global democratic recession? You know, I wouldn't
1: necessarily jump to that conclusion, or I certainly won't be as pessimistic. It's not to say that there aren't problems, and I think you've rightly identified a lot of the problems that we've been talking about. And many of those are shared not just in Western democracies, but around the world. But I think if you take a step back, there's a long history, if you will, of democracies predicting the decline of democracy. <laughs> and before World War II, with the rise of fascism and communism. It goes back to the Cold War, and, and you see a lot of very pessimistic literature in the 50s through the 70s on democracy and and the belief that it was maybe it wasn't a superior system to to others. And I think you know maybe we're at a different moment today. It's not as if there are problems and there are some very deep problems. But take a study done by Freedom House, and this is a, I think a very well-respected study that measures the quantity and scale of of democracy around the world. The numbers of countries that Freedom House defines as as free countries has remained relatively the same over the last 20 years, 44 to 47%, roughly. The number of countries that Freedom House defines as not free has also been pretty consistent, 22 to 26%. And the numbers that are partly free, about 28 to 32%. So that doesn't necessarily indicate a precipitous decline in democracy. And I think other indicators, both measures of the quality of democracy, show that uh, again with some very notable exceptions, you haven't seen a kind of precipitous decline. And then I would say the third factor to look at is public opinion surveys about the satisfaction of democracy, which, again, indicates some contrasting trends between certain Western and certain non-Western countries.
0: So how much would you say, Druva, that Western conceptions of democracy factor into this perception of global democratic decline? And maybe you could outline for us what you see as different conceptions between the West and the non-West views on what it means to be a democratic state. I think
1: some of that you have to step back, and I've I've tried to do that in my paper, step back a little bit to how countries became democratic in the first place. And I try and mostly categorize countries into three broad baskets. One, starting with the United States, actually, were countries that really initially were inspired by the Enlightenment, by Enlightenment principles. You see this in the founding U.S. documents, the Declaration of Independence, Federalist Papers, the Constitution, and basically had a strong emphasis on individualism. And this policy has been sustained in uh, countries like the United States that have been very immigrant heavy, where you have this kind of melting pot of of people, and there's a strong emphasis on individual rights. You have a second group of countries, largely in Europe and in South Korea, to the mix of democratic countries that also have a very strong national identity. And there, in some ways, these became nation states around the same time, or they actually democratized after becoming nation states in some ways. And so you have relatively homogenous societies in all of these places which made it easier to, to focus on a democratic rule. And I think one key feature is that's kind of centralizing to some of the immigration debates that these countries are having. They tend to be much more anti-immigration than even the United States and say Canada and Australia. But the third group of countries is in some ways the most interesting, and these are countries that had to forge a democratic identity and democratic institutions in a much more pluralistic and multicultural setting. And this was really, in some ways, a consequence of decolonization that took place mostly after World War II. And India was at the forefront of this. So in 1947, India becomes independent. It's a large, multicultural, multi-religious country. And very unusually, they decide to go with a democratic constitution. And it looks very different from, say, the US constitution. It actually has carve outs for various minority groups. It tries to protect collective identity, not just individual rights. And in some ways, the Indian experience is not that unusual. If you look at most democratizing African countries or, or Asian countries, their setups look quite similar. And it leads to things like Lebanon. You can only be president, prime minister, or speaker of the legislature if you belong to a certain ethnic group. That's something that would be really foreign to a European or an American. Right. You see carve outs on who can for whom a mandatory military service is required, who has certain kind of special representation in the legislature or civil services. And you see that in countries like India and in Bangladesh and in Indonesia, in South Africa, and Kenya, Nigeria. So this is the kind of phenomenon that I thought was useful to insert into debate because, again, these are democratic countries. In some ways, they're, they're all becoming more democratic mostly, but it looks very different from a classic European nation state or a country like the United States.
0: And I think this is an excellent perspective, you know, the one that a further shortcoming in this debate on democracy worldwide is the inability at times to distinguish between as you write for the project, different democratic architectures and to note that not all democracies are cut from the same cloth. So this is an important distinction as we look at the global state of democracy between Western, as you mentioned, kind of enlightenment democracies and those coming more from a post-colonial tradition. And to come back to this current moment, this current contested moment in international order and a time when democracy itself is Contested. You mentioned a number of differences between Western and non Western conceptions of democracy. Can you also walk us through what you see as some of the similar challenges that democratic states, either emerging or advanced, face at this moment in time? So I do think there are some
1: some very key areas of convergence or at least similar experiences that are being faced. And I like to describe them as the four I's, which are identity, inequality, information, and interference. And let me unpack what I mean by each of these. I think on the identity question, there was this belief that came up that given the information environment, given greater democratization, that we'd also see the greater cosmopolitan, greater, more cosmopolitan societies emerge, not just globally and and internationally, but also within countries, that we'd become more tolerant, that we'd become, we'd be more exposed to people that weren't like us. And I think one of the myths and one of the things that's been unexpected, and we've seen this become more pronounced in the last few years in different countries in different ways, is that identity remains very crucial to people's societies. And we see this in the anti-immigration debates in Europe. We see this in the continued rise of identity politics in India. Recently, Indonesia had a very crucial case where the governor of Jakarta, the largest city, was a minority, a Christian, was arrested and tried and jailed for blasphemy. And so even a country that is otherwise, in many ways, a real success case for democracy, Indonesia, identity remains very strong. In inequality, I mean, well, what's actually key is not just simply actual inequality, but the perception of relative inequality between people. And that, of course, leads to greater frustration. And again, we're seeing this play out in different ways, particularly as economies change towards capital intensive and high productivity types of economies, where which leads to stagnant wage growth in the lower end of the spectrum. I think a third sh- a shared challenge is the new information environment. And I think adjusting to how particularly the digital sphere is now affecting information flows, which are critical to how a a good democracy should function, is a common concern. And I think the rise of political echo chambers, growing misinformation or fake news, the increased theatricality of politics is, again, a common feature in, in lots of places. In India, for example, you now have this phenomenon of opposition parties walking out of parliament. And this only started in the last one to two decades when parliamentary debates started becoming televised. So in some ways, the irony is televising parliamentary debates has made India more democratic in some ways. People can actually see in real time what is being debated by their elected leaders. At the same time, it's actually undermined the functioning of parliament because there is this tendency to fall back on theatrics. The last one uh, concern, I think, is interference. And that's part of the idea of open societies. All open societies are to various degrees open. We expect both to outside and internal debate and whether it's financing, other mechanisms like that. And sometimes that's not necessarily reciprocated by non or less open societies. So I think one of the issues we're we're dealing with is, you know, we expect a certain kind of maybe interference is too strong a word sometimes, but influence by external actors. But you're at a disadvantage in terms of influencing them back. And we see this again at the U.S.-China competition, I think, is quite critical to that. So I think these are some common concerns, identity, inequality, information, and interference that are shared to different degrees by all democracies.
0: Dr. I want to pick up on one of the four eyes that you put forward this notion of inequality really affecting advanced democracies across the west but in other regions as well and this has been a significant phenomenon since the 2008 global financial crisis in which we saw inequality further increase even at a time of global economic recession and at the same time over the last decade we have seen a new, successful, authoritarian economic model put forward by China at a time where Chinese influence and presence around the world is rising. Do you see China's authoritarian economic model, if we can call it that, present a clear and perhaps new alternative to democracy for emerging economies, emerging democracies around the world, authoritarian leaders that might be presented with new political and economic options from China? Or is the choice between a liberal democratic model and China's authoritarian economic model perhaps too simplistic? How do you see this new choice put forward by China's economic model? Well,
1: I think what's really interesting about China's rise is, well, initially, it did not try and say that it was a model for other countries, that in China's self-perception and its rise until relatively recently, it was unique. And it has changed a little bit under Xi Jinping, the Secretary General of the Chinese Communist Party and President. But now for the first time, China is exerting itself in a way, positioning itself as a model, actively talking about how Western systems are inferior to, to what it has. So, it's interesting to see how this will play out. And we do see a certain collaboration by China with other authoritarian leaders around the world. At the same time, I wouldn't read too much into it yet because very few other countries are actively trying to replicate China's model of governance, at least at the macro level. Maybe, you know, local level development, I think we are seeing some efforts of trying to emulate certain aspects. But certainly at the macro level, there are very few countries. And just to put this in perspective, I think there are only five other countries in the world today, apart from China that are constitutionally single-party states and they are Vietnam, Laos, North Korea, Cuba, and Eritrea. And barring perhaps Vietnam, the others aren't exactly models of good governance. So I think it is interesting that, you know, you don't see this uh, single-party state model being replicated actively by other places. And in most other authoritarian states, they're actually within a nominally multi-party framework. You see the rise of one party or one individual with consolidating power, you know, whether it's Hungary or Turkey or anywhere else. So I do think China's rise is clearly having an effect, and many are looking to China in much more positive ways today because of what it's been able to accomplish economically. But at the same time, I'd caution against this idea that China is offering a successful alternative model to democracy quite yet.
0: Driva, I want to turn to focus on democracy within India in particular. We've discussed to this point that India is a very dynamic, pluralistic system. It is the largest democracy in the world population-wise. It, of course, is still beset by many challenges that democratic governance face, corruption. Many say that current Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, has consolidated control in ways that we haven't seen from other Indian governments in decades. What do you see as specific challenges that India currently faces to its democratic system?
1: You know, I think India faces a multitude of challenges. and In some ways, it makes it very fascinating to work at a public policy institute in in India because just about every problem you have anywhere in the world, you have some variation of it almost in India. At the same time, you know, I think in some ways the roots of Indian democracy have never been deeper. When India had the first few elections in the 1950s and 1960s, there were real questions about whether it would work, whether it would last. The majority of people who were voting in those early elections were illiterate, could read and write their own names. And you know, I, I think there were real questions about whether it would function and last in, in a society like that. It was really quite impoverished. that was dependent on the rest of the world for food aid until the 1960s. But, you know, I, I think if you look today...
0: I mean, China's rise has been incredibly impressive,
1: there's no question about that. But again, India using in a democratic framework has been managing to grow at 7 at times in the recent past 8% a year for much of the last decade or two. So I think, you know, for some people, again, obviously India's rise has been overshadowed by China's and there are many good reasons for that. But I think not enough is, is looked at sort of how India has successfully managed to create a somewhat rising and growing economy amidst huge demographic challenges, meaning of a very large growing youth population and again a democratic system now again there are some of the issues the same issues that are being faced in the west you know inequality is an issue so we are seeing just as in some ways india is opening up both economy and its society you're also seeing a greater state control over certain aspects of it in an effort to mitigate the inequality sometimes you are seeing a rise of identity politics you know not just on the right and the left and in different regions as well so not just Hindu nationalism, which we have seen, but also a state-level identity. So many of the large states, and so the larger Indian states have populations of 40, 60, 80, in one case 200 million people. They're the size of sizable countries. Many of them have state-level parties that cater largely to regional concerns. And again, they've capitalized on a regional identity in many ways. We have caste parties emerging as well, whose bases one, and in many cases, these are disadvantaged castes as well, who are politically organized. This happened pretty in the 90s. So we do have the rising identity politics, again, with the deepening of democracy. You have concerns about inequality. We have a real problem with fake news, I think, and that's mm. going to, we're going to see this in the next few weeks in, in the election campaign. So these are just some of the things that India is facing on top of everything else as part of its development.
0: And Dhruva, one critical aspect of this democracy and disorder project that we've really tried to tease out from the policy briefs and the contributions in this project is to look at the intersection between challenges and opportunities within democratic systems and the role that such democratic states might play in international order. And India is no exception to this intersection and to this focus. And so I'm curious what you see as the debate in New Delhi about India's role in upholding an international system in many ways that appears to be fraying.
1: That's a really interesting question. And in the past, it's been a much more contentious question. That is, Indians have traditionally, if you talk to many Indian leaders or policymakers, they'll say, you know, India is very proud of its own democracy, but it doesn't believe in imposing that value on other people. Now I think that's a nice thing to say and it's politically correct, but the reality is a little bit different. And in fact, a colleague of mine, Constantino Xavier, who's a fellow, another fellow in foreign policy studies at Brookings India, is doing some fascinating work on ways in which India has, in fact, contributed in the past and currently to democratic state building in a, in a variety of countries, most notably in its near neighborhood. Even though it has not embraced necessarily the rhetoric of democratic promotion, and just some of the ways you know that come out are. Indian capacity building efforts, particularly in the developing world. I mean, you have diplomats from all across Africa, administrators, election commissioners, uh, election administrators, ombudsmen, judges who come to India for training. And in some ways, the environment is maybe similar. But, you know, India has actually used its own resources to help build a soft capacity in these emerging democracies in Africa in South Asia in Southeast Asia and elsewhere. Another good example, I think, is you know India's building into its own foreign aid and poor development projects efforts that basically aspects to ensure better transparency, better you know less corruption and things like that. Again, a lot of this is a work in progress, but it offers a bit of a contrast to, for example, China's Belt and Road Initiative. It takes into account things like local environmental concerns. So I think these are some of the efforts underway. Afghanistan, I think, is a great example. I mean, Afghanistan's running through. A lot of challenges, and I think we'll see the situation deteriorate maybe a little bit in the next year or two. But at the same time, over the last 15, 20 years, India has quietly built the parliament building in Kabul. It has provided training for civil servants and military officers and election commissioners as well. It's, you know, students. So, and also provided other sort of hard infrastructure related to the state. So it's a case where it doesn't get a lot of press, but I think India is contributing in these various ways. And I'm not sure that's always recognized. And is certainly not alone. Prior to the economic slowdown, Brazil was very active in Africa, including in Western Africa, for doing similar things in terms of providing assistance and uh, development. And then take efforts like in Indonesia, there's something called the Bali Democracy Forum set up by the previous president, which is the kind of thing that you think should be celebrated and supported by the West, which is, you know, again, a forum for democratic cooperation. These are just some examples, I think, of non-Western democracies taking a more active role in supporting, bolstering, promoting democracy, both at home and, and overseas, that I think would benefit from support from more established and developed Western countries. A similar point, which is your issue on other things that can be done in collaboration. I think, again, there's a lot that can be done in terms of lessons learned. And in fact, just in the next few days, there are going to be some discussions here in Delhi about how India can harden its system, including its political system, from the prospect of foreign interference, knowing that this has been a concern in the past in recent elections in Europe and the United States.
0: Just to pick up on that last point, this notion of kind of foreign interference in India's upcoming elections—where has India typically seen such kinds of interference emerge from when it when it comes to its national elections? In the past,
1: there hasn't been large-scale concerns about foreign interference. There have been concerns about foreign funding for political parties, and that remains—it's a long-standing concern going back to the sixties and seventies. You know, various politicians were accused of being the height of the Cold War being you know funded by the Soviets or funded by the United States. So I think that kind of foreign interference has always been, there have been concerns about. To date, India has been relatively insulated from some of the foreign interference concerns that we've seen in countries like France and, of course, the U.S. And it may be for a few curious reasons. I think one is there's specific concerns about Russia and in, in many of uh, Western countries. And for political reasons and otherwise, Russia doesn't have the same interest in interfering in Indian politics. You would think there would be more concern about China and Pakistan, particularly, which are two adversarial relationships that India has had. But again, for a few unusual reasons, I think India has been somewhat immune. And that's due to a few things. One is the sort of hardening of its electoral mechanisms. So, for example, Indian electronic voting machines are offline, which helps in preventing tampering. There are systems in place to ensure that now that electronic votes can be recounted and that the prospect of interference is minimized. So the hardening of the mechanics of the elections, has, I think, has helped. A real credit is due to the Election Commission of India for that. But other things, you know, you don't really have. It's very hard for foreign entities of any kind, any country, to fund media organizations or educational organizations in India. And that, those have often been vessels of influence. So, again, for a variety of very unusual reasons, I think India has been relatively immune to date. That doesn't mean that it will remain immune forever.
0: And you bring up an interesting point, Druva, about the extent to which non-Western democracies have already begun contributing to global democratic institution building and norms in ways in which it's not always completely appreciated in the West. Moving forward, how do you think cooperation between democracies can be improved?
1: There's no easy answer to that. At a time when there is concern about democratic decline, real or perceived, I think it's going to be difficult to actively promote that, although I'm sure there will be efforts to that extent. I think in India, there's been a little less shyness about talking publicly about democracy as a virtue. Again, it's changing. It's still not as active as, say, the U.S. government is and on on that. But I think the needle has shifted a little bit. A few years ago, for example, the U.S. and India supported a democracy fund at the United Nations. And again, it was a small fund. I'm not sure it's been used as effectively as it could have been. But it marked a step in India's own ability to position itself as a leader in the democratic world. But largely, I think on two broad areas, I think we can see more collaboration, which is one tapping into existing initiatives by the developing world and seeing how they can buttress uh, Western initiatives. Sometimes it may not be in the name of democracy, but, you know, whether it is development initiatives, whether it's capacity building initiatives, that kind of work is already underway. I think the second element will be just improving dialogue amongst democracies to try and address similar problems that all are facing. And there, I think we haven't seen as much progress. There have been some kind of track two efforts or non-governmental efforts led out of Eastern Europe and Indonesia, other places. But it's not yet gone to a level that states are taking an active role. And there are some good reasons for that. I think nobody wants to be unnecessarily exclusive. Nobody wants to have to very strictly define what is a democracy and what isn't, particularly in areas where these are emerging democracies that may see some backsliding. So I think for all these reasons, there's been a hesitance on the part of both Western democracies and non-Western democracies to talk about, say, a community of democracies, which was an idea floated a little while ago. But, you know, I think we may be moving very slowly in that direction.
0: And I would be remiss at the close of our conversation to not ask you about India's own upcoming national elections in just a few short months. What do you see as some of the competing visions for India that will be put on display by both current Prime Minister Narendra Modi's parties and the opposition party going into this election?
1: So, you know, the election is always an exciting time in India. Every, at least in the recent past, Every national election by India has been the largest organized human activity in history, just because the number of voters increase with each election. So, you know, you'll have you know, tens of millions of first-time voters just in this election alone. So it will be very interesting to see how it goes. We're already, at this point of time, in campaign mode, although the dates of the elections have not been set quite yet. But it'll happen in the next few weeks. In terms of competing visions, you know, I think there are some differences around the margins. But by and large, India has been, at least in terms of its foreign policy and its position in the world, has been relatively consistent over the last 25 years or so, from the time it embarked on economic liberalization in 1991. And we've seen more or less each prime minister, regardless of party, build upon the progress made by his predecessor. So it's always there hasn't been that much discontinuity between Modi and his predecessor manmohan Singh, who belonged to the Congress party in foreign affairs. There have been some changes around the margins and in terms. Rhetoric used and how things are presented and portrayed. But largely, there's been, I think, more continuity than there has been discontinuity. And I would expect that to continue no matter what happens in the forthcoming elections. There will be some changes around the margins. I think, you know, we may see an India that is more, you know, slightly more or less inward looking, depending on what happens in the election. But I don't think we'll see a dramatic change.
0: Well, Druva, this has been an interesting conversation focusing not only on democracy in India but India's evolving role in international order moving forward. And I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us this morning.
1: Thanks so much, Tori.
0: You can find out more about the Democracy and Disorder Project at brookings.edu slash democracy and disorder. The Brookings Cafeteria Podcast is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter at policypodcasts and email questions or comments to bcp at brookings.edu. Gaston Reboredo is the audio engineer, and Quinn Lucas is the audio intern. Chris McKenna and Brendan Hobin are the producers. A special thanks to Fred Dews, host of the Brookings Cafeteria podcast, and Anna Newby in Foreign Policy for their assistance with this special series. Thanks for listening. I'm Tori Tausig.